God, we thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that you are a God who is uh, sovereign in control of the entire universe. You are powerful. And you also show that you are good. You are for us. Uh, you are compassionate, merciful, gracious. We thank you for sending your son Jesus so that we can know you truly and so that we can see uh, and experience your salvation in him. We thank you so much for him. God, we love you. I pray that you would use your word today to shape us as your people. Bring us to Jesus. Help us to know him uh, in, in a fresh and powerful way this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Philip Yancey tells the story of uh, a man that he uh, knew named Richard. And Richard had come to trust Jesus uh, when he was a, a college student. And when he came to believe in Jesus, he was so excited. And he, he was growing, he was reading the Bible, he joined a church, and he was doing everything he could to, to get more of God. He just was so excited about this. So he attended uh, this healing service early on uh, by evangelist Catherine Kuhlman. This was back in the, in the 60s, 70s. And, and at that uh, healing service, he, he had a really interesting experience. He saw this man who had been brought into the service on a stretcher, be brought forward to the very front, and, and he stood up and he walked across uh, the platform and he addressed uh, the crowd there. He was a doctor and he had been diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. And he'd been given six months to live. They, they told him that there's nothing they could do about this, not even to prolong his life. And so, so he had this death sentence hanging over his head. But as he stood there talking to the crowd, he said that he believed that that, that night... God had healed him. God had rescued him and saved him. This was the first time he'd uh, walked in, in months and he felt great. And so he, he was praising God for this great miracle that, that he felt God do in his life. Well, this was so exciting for Richard, this, this new believer. He got to see right in front of him the evidence of God's power in, in healing uh, someone's life, this incurable thing, miraculously healed. And so he, he wanted to follow up with the guy and, and tell him how encouraging his story had been to him. So, so he looked him up in the phone directory. This was way back in the day. And, and he found him and he, and he gave him a call. This was about a week after the service. And, and what he found when he made that call was stunning to him. The man had died. So he had come into this, this service and he felt like God had healed him and he was giving God praise and credit for that. And, he was, and then Richard, this, this guy watching it, was so excited about that. But then to find out that within... A week, the man had passed away. It wasn't actually miraculous healing. Well, this shook Richard to the core, and it started this, this process of, of him questioning God and trying to find out what he actually believed about God over a period of months. And it finally came to a head one night. He decided that he was going to give God one more chance. He says, I prayed that night as earnestly and sincerely as I knew how. I prayed on my knees. I, I prayed stretched out flat on the oak floor. God, do you care, I prayed. I don't want to tell you how to run your world, but please give me some sign that you're really there. That's all I ask. For four hours into the early morning, he was praying and praying, desperate for an answer. And he felt like nothing happened. So he got up. And he decided he was done. I just don't believe in this God anymore. Burned his Bible, walked away. Now, that might seem like a, a discouraging story to share. It, it's, we, we like the stories of, of hearing that, that someone cries out to God and God answers that, that prayer in a miraculous way. And, and that, that happens. And those are really encouraging stories. We love those. But I think it's also important for us to, to look at the, the nature of our faith and what we are trusting in. And specifically, the relationship between our faith 
and miracles, these supernatural things that happen. Richard's faith had been, had been buoyed so strongly by what, by what he thought he had seen, a true miracle here. And that when he found out that it wasn't true, it came crashing down. But, but what if it had happened differently? What if that was really a genuine miracle and, and that, that man was cured of cancer forever? Or what if God had spoken to him that night and, and, and somehow in a tangible way that he could feel and understand, he would know God was that? Would that have changed the story for Richard? Would, would it have given him a, an unshakable faith? I feel like sometimes we think that that's, that's true. If I just saw one genuine miracle, I'd never doubt again. I would always believe. But the Bible gives a more complicated picture than that. Today we're going to look at, at a story of Jesus healing in a miraculous, supernatural way, a legitimate healing. No one could doubt it. And yet we see what comes out of that is not necessarily what we would expect. So grab your Bible. We're going to look at a couple passages uh, together. We're in the Gospel of John, this biography of the life of Jesus this winter. And we're exploring who Jesus is and finding out that he is the one and only sent from God. And now there's a gut check on what do we actually do with what we see Jesus do. So we're going to look at John 4, verse 43, through chapter 5, verse 15. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, grab one from the, the chair in front of you. The chair rack in front of you is found on page 1654. So John 4, beginning in verse 43. We're going to see two uh, different miraculous signs and two very different results that come out of them. So let's look at the first sign first. Verse 43 gives us the setting. After the two days he left for Galilee, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Now this is a good setup. The people are welcoming Jesus. They had seen him do um, miraculous, powerful things before when he was in Jerusalem, and they're expecting that he's going to do more. So this man brings his son, and his son is, is in legitimate need. He's on his deathbed, and so he comes and asks uh, God to, to do something, he asks Jesus to, to do something, to heal his son. And then we hear Jesus respond like this. Verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now that's not the response that we'd expect from Jesus here, right? Like someone has come with a, with a true need, a father desperate for his son to live. And Jesus is saying, well, listen, you guys are about the wrong thing here. And why, why would he say that? Jesus is using the opportunity here to point out a problem with how the crowds are viewing him. They see these powerful things that he is doing, but they want more of those powerful things without recognizing what those powerful things are supposed to do. These miraculous signs are signs. They're not just raw displays of power. They're signs, and signs do something. They're pointing to something. They're trying to show people this is who Jesus actually is. But the people are stuck looking at the wrong thing. They're just focused on the sign itself rather than allowing the sign to show them who Jesus is. So let, let's imagine that we're in a, in a more exotic place uh, than Ludington. Let's say that you have gone to Africa and you are on safari. 
I don't know if anyone actually does that, but it's my story, so I could say they are. So you're in safari, on safari in Africa. You've got this Land Rover, and you're driving through this game preserve. And it's awesome. You're seeing these amazing animals in their natural habitat. You've only seen them in the zoo before, or maybe you've never seen some before. So you get to see this amazing thing. It's awesome. And then you come across this sign. Now, that's a pretty impressive sign, right? It says, warning, right across the top with bold on on red writing. It says, don't get out of your car. Do not open your windows. These animals can attack. And there's this picture of a lion attacking somebody. So you see that sign. You think, okay, well, that's a pretty interesting sign. I've never seen a sign like that before. So you stop the car and you take a picture. You think, okay, this is going to be fun to show that my friend's at home. But then the window of your car kind of gets in the way. There's a little bit of a glare. So you roll down your window. I want to get a better shot of this. Roll down the window. Okay, here we go. That's a better shot. And then you think, you know what? What if I had a picture of me standing next to that sign? Wouldn't that be awesome? My friends would be able to see me next to the sign. So you get out of the car. You walk over there. You start uh, getting posing for your picture. And a lion comes and mauls you and you get attacked, right? Like no one's going to do that because you, you read the sign and you actually pay attention to its warning. There is danger here. You don't want to get mauled by a lion. So you're going to pay attention to what the sign says. Jesus is doing these amazing miracles. They are signs that are supposed to point people to who he actually is. But people are just focused on the the power behind it, and they're missing the fact that this is pointing to Jesus. This is who he is. The, The signs are not an end in themselves. They point to Jesus. They point to what God is doing through him. They're designed to show Jesus is here. God's rescue is here in him. He is the one and only, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So don't get stuck taking selfies in front of a sign. Let that sign point you to its purpose, that Jesus is the one. Verse 49, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. So Jesus is, is telling that the problem here, but, but this man is just desperate. This is his son. He loves him, and he's about to lose him. He's broken, and he just humbly comes before God, comes before Jesus, please, heal my son, do something. And so Jesus gives him this, this simple command, go, and a simple promise, your son as well. And the man believes him. He takes Jesus at his word. So Does this become the kind of faith that that Jesus is looking for? Verse 51. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And so he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So Jesus performs this sign, and this family gets it. The sign points them to Jesus, and they trust in him. So this is, this is what we would expect to happen. That Jesus does something amazing, and people see his identity. They see who he is through this. So this is, this is a good outcome. The first sign results in belief. That's how it should be. But it's not always so neat and simple. It's not always how it happens. So look at this second sign, beginning in chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. 
Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So the, the setting for this next miraculous sign that Jesus is going to do uh, is basically a superstitious healing place. Um, your, your Bible may or may not have a verse 4 uh, of chapter 5. Uh, my translation has it as a footnote, and here's what it says. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after such a disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, from the uh, copies of the New Testament that we have, uh, it looks like this is probably something that a later scribe wrote down to help us understand what was happening here. Um, an, an explanatory kind of a note. The earliest uh, copies that we have, the best copies, don't have that in there. But it does help us to understand a little bit of, of what's happening and, and why people are coming to this place. They see it as a, as a mystical healing pool, and so people with all sorts of disabilities would gather there hoping to be healed. So Jesus goes, and he comes across a certain man there. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, we have to say that Jesus' question here seems really strange, right? Do you want to get well? I mean, yes, of course he wants to get well. He's been, he's been paralyzed for 38 years. Of course he wants to get well. And, and look at where he is. He's at this place where he thinks healing can happen. He believes in, in the power of, of, of this pool. So yes, of course he wants to get well. And so he responds by pointing out the problem at, from his own perspective. From his perspective, all he needs is someone to get him down to the water fast enough so that he can be the first one there. Because the first one gets healed. No one else gets healed. He believes in the, the healing power of this pool and this kind of superstitious sort of thing. So the best he's looking for is some help to kind of get down to the water. He doesn't have that help. What's he supposed to do? So he's still coming down here. But you can imagine that by this point, he probably didn't have a whole lot of uh, trust that he was ever going to get healed. Yes, still enough to go there, but not really enough to expect anything. Verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. So this totally changed the thing. The man was not expecting anything. The, the most he might have hoped for is for Jesus to help him down into the water. But instead, Jesus instantly and completely heals him. This is an amazing thing that has happened. 38 years of disability, and this guy suddenly healed enough to pick up his, his mat and actually walk around. A legitimate miracle. So what's going to happen? Is he going to then believe in Jesus? Is the same thing going to happen to him that happened to this official and his family whose son was healed? Verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. I mean, how frustrating is this, right? Jesus does this amazing, miraculous thing. He has healed a man who for almost four decades couldn't walk, and nobody gets it. The man himself 
doesn't get it. He, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. He's, he's been coming down to this pool and he's probably mostly lost any hope of getting healed, but now he's instantly and fully healed and he didn't even bother to find out what Jesus' name was. So clearly this miraculous sign didn't point him to Jesus. And then the religious leaders, all they can think about is the fact that this guy is violating this, this Sabbath regulation. Instead of seeing a miracle, they're seeing an infraction. On the Sabbath, by the way, was a, a day of rest for God's people. And this was coming from the command of God. God. God told them, you work for six days, but on the seventh day, that's a day of, of rest to me. It's a holy day. And that's how, God, uh, that's how God's people could show their devotion to him, to accept his gift of rest, and to show their trust of him. But by this time period, the religious leaders had, had kind of developed this whole set of regulations around that. This counts as work. This doesn't count as work. You can walk this many steps and all that kind of thing. Well, carrying your mat, that counts as work. So this guy's doing the wrong thing on the Sabbath. But think about what's happening here. This guy has been paralyzed, and now he's walking around, and all they can think about is the fact that, well, he's doing that on the Sabbath while carrying something. Well, you think, well, how dense can people get, right? They're missing something so huge, so amazing, because of a little technicality. How dense can people be? But then, of course, I realized I've been in that position myself. I remember a time I was in college and, and NASA was releasing these amazing uh, photographs from the Hubble Space Telescope. And one of my best friends in college was a, a physics major, so a real science-y kind of a guy. He would keep up on all this kind of stuff. And he was, uh, he was showing me some of the pictures of these galaxies, you know, thousands, millions of light years away. Just incredible. And he's going on and on about how amazing it is that they get to capture these. And so I walk over to the computer, I take a look at them. And I say, they're not very colorful. They're kind of grainy. And he looks at me, what are you talking about? Do you have any idea how complicated it is, how amazing it is that they're able to put a space telescope up there to capture these images that we've never seen before, and you're worried about the picture quality? What is wrong with you? I'm like, well, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> and he's right, right? I'm, I'm focused on the wrong thing. I'm looking at the graininess and that lack of color in a photo when before me is this thing that no one has ever seen before in the history of humanity and, and right in front of us because I had no context. I was focused on the wrong thing. And so here, too, Jesus does something amazing, and rather than recognizing that and praising God through Jesus, they're like, hey, this is the wrong day for something amazing to happen. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus gives the man another chance. The guy didn't even know who Jesus was. He didn't even know his name, and Jesus wants him to know who he is. He also gives him a warning, though. See, Jesus had healed him physically, totally restored. But the man still had great need because he didn't get who Jesus is. He didn't get the, the healing, the spiritual healing and transformation that God is affecting through Jesus. So yes, he is physically well, but spiritually he is hugely needy. And so Jesus warns him not to sin anymore, lest something worse happens. Now in the context of this, this book of John that we've been reading together this winter, it's possible that what Jesus means here by sin is not believing in him. Later in the book, that, that's how it will be used. Jesus will, will say that not believing that God sent him is identified as sin, not seeing who Jesus really is. So stop sinning here may be another way of saying, believe in me. 
I mean, you've seen this amazing miracle. Open your eyes to see who Jesus is. So it's a warning against unbelief. But all we're left with here is this ambiguous ending. Did the man actually believe in Jesus? We don't really know. It's just a question mark at the end of this. His, and you think about it from his perspective, he, he was 38 years paralyzed. Now he's walking around, and yet somehow he still doesn't get it. At best, we've got question marks. So as we look at these, these two miraculous things that, that Jesus did, they have such different results. The one works effectively as a sign. And this man and his whole family come to believe in Jesus. Yes, he is the Savior of the world. He is the one that God sent to rescue us. But then this paralyzed man gets healed, and we just don't know. Totally ambiguous. See, here's, here's what we come to understand. Miraculous signs have to point us to Jesus. They have to get us to him. Jesus is the one and only. John's been, been hammering this home through this whole book. Jesus is the unique son of God who is with God in the very beginning. Everything that's being created is created through him. He is that powerful. He is eternal. And he is now the, the lamb of God, the savior of the world. And everything that Jesus did in his life and his ministry and, and everything that John is telling us about him in this book is designed for one purpose, so that we would know and believe in him. That's the point of this whole thing, that we would know and believe in Jesus. Because if that happens, if we recognize who Jesus is, if we believe in him, what happens is that we then have eternal life. We saw last week Jesus offers living water. Such an eternal, satisfying thing that it becomes in us a spring welling up to eternal life. That's what we are offered. But if we miss Jesus, we miss that whole thing. So these signs are supposed to show us, here's who Jesus is, to show his glory, so that we believe in him and find life. But that's not always what happens. Many people will see these things, and they'll just move away. I, I think for, for you and I, that the challenge, the temptation is to look back and think, well, if I had been there, I would have believed. Of course I would have believed. Right? If you see something so uh, amazing, so miraculous, so powerful, you'd never doubt again. You'd, of course, you'd never question but the evidence suggests otherwise. It's not how what happens in the stories. It's not what happened with the paralyzed man. It's not what happened with the religious leaders. See, the important thing is for us to allow the signs to actually get us to Jesus. If we focus on the signs themselves and we lose sight of him, it doesn't do us any good at all. It's totally worthless. We've missed the point. When we think about miracles and faith and what it means to experience the power of God, this is the point that makes all the difference. Do these displays bring us to Jesus or not? I've mentioned before that one of my heroes is Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, she was, had a diving accident when she was a teenager that left her paralyzed from the neck down, quadriplegic. And you can imagine this, 17-year-old girl, totally transformed her life. When she was in the hospital following her, her accident, she read this passage in John 5 about the healing of the man of Bethesda. And so she recognized that God had the power to heal her. I mean, this guy had been paralyzed for 38 years, and Jesus says a word, and he's healed completely. 
And then she heard that and she begged God, God, heal me like you healed that man. Please. I don't want to live the rest of my life in a wheelchair. Please heal me. But she left the, chair, the, the hospital in a wheelchair. And for 50 years, every day of her existence, she's been in a wheelchair. So like Richard, the man that we talked about at the outset, she experienced initially this deep disappointment with God. God, I know you have the power to do this. I read about your power to do this through your son. Why didn't you heal me? But she continued to, to dig. And she continued to, to bring her disappointment to God. She brought her struggles to Jesus. And she studied God's character, finding out who he is. And, and this is what she can say now. I would rather be in this chair knowing Jesus than to be walking around on my feet and not know him. Here's what that means. That means that a miracle happened in that woman, right? I mean, not the miracle that she was praying for and begging God for, not the kind of miracle that you or I in her position would be begging God for, but a miracle has happened in her because she realized that what she has, even though she hasn't been physically healed, what she has is more valuable eternally than what that man who was healed at Bethesda had. That man was physically restored, but left empty. He didn't get Jesus. And so for eternity, he's got nothing to hang on to. But she recognized that even though God didn't answer that, that prayer for her physical healing, God gave her more of himself. And that's what she really needed. More than anything else, God is our true need. So the miracles, the signs, all of this are pointing to him. So as we as we pray for God's healing and, and we expect God to answer that prayer, but we recognize that he is powerful to bring full and complete healing in any situation. So we pray for that. That's the longing of our heart. And he invites us to pray for that. And when he does heal, we praise him. And we say he is good. But we allow that healing to lift our praise to him and not just be in awe of the event itself, but in awe of the one who is so powerful and so good to do that. And when God in his in his sovereignty, chooses not to heal in that kind of miraculous, powerful way, we still recognize that we have everything we need through his son, Jesus. Because he is more satisfying. And he is better than anything else. So for us, as we come face to face with, with this kind of a passage, as we look around us, it, it causes us to examine the, the nature of our faith. Am I really here for God? Do I really love him more than anything? Or am I hoping that God will just do something for me? Am I here for what I can get out of God? Am I here for, for what I feel my needs are? Or am I here because I have experienced that God is so good? See, do we actually stand amazed at Jesus himself? Because that's the primary thing. We started this year with uh, 21 days of prayer and fasting alongside of 15 other churches in our community, focusing our energy and, and our, our prayers together on, on getting more of God, recognizing and, and, and saying with, with, our, with our daily routine that we need him more than anything else. I gave up coffee for that 21-day period, and uh, when Monday hit, the first day when that fast is over, I, I was embarrassingly excited about coffee. I couldn't wait to run downstairs, and I'm like grabbing the beans off the shelf, putting them in the grinder. I'm almost knocking it. I had to like stop myself, take a breath, 
slow down. You're going to make a huge mess. I have to start over and, and brew the coffee. Because I was so excited about getting that first sip of coffee in three weeks. And then I feel the, the quiet prompting of the Spirit. Do I want Jesus that much? Am I so excited to, to spend time in the presence of God that I can't wait to get out of bed and run down the stairs and spend time with my Savior? Do I love him that much? Do I really believe that he is more satisfying than anything else? Am I settling for just a cup of coffee? So I'm, I'm asking God to show me that he is more satisfying than anything else. I'm asking for the signs and, and the things that, that the, the scriptures testify about Jesus, that those would serve as signs and actually draw me up to see the glory of Jesus and to praise God through him. I'm asking God for more of himself. This morning we have before us the, the Lord's Supper. And this is a simple meal that Jesus gives us to remind us that we need him and that he is for us. Through this meal, we are reminded of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And we're reminded that we, that we take of him, that we need him. The uh, bread reminds us of the body of Jesus, that we need to be united to him to find life. And then the cup reminds us of the blood of Jesus that has won our salvation, that he died on the cross. And that means that all of our sins are forgiven as we put our trust in him. So this meal is a, is a tangible reminder through things that we can touch and see and taste that Jesus is satisfying, and that he has given himself to us. So let's pray that God would use that meal toward that end for us. Join me in prayer. God, I thank you for sending your son to rescue us. I thank you for the reality that, that life is found in him. I pray that as we take this meal together, you'd remind us powerfully of those truths. We're thankful for the bread and for the cup. We pray that these elements will provide more than just a snack for us. I pray that you would give us the peace and the unity and the spiritual nourishment that the bread symbolizes. I pray that the cup would speak again of the blood Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin. Father, cleanse us, consecrate us again as we partake of this meal together. We eagerly await the day we'll eat it with you in the kingdom of heaven. In Christ's name, amen.